Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson Podcast. Today, from my investigation into 2020 election issues to the FBI's role on January 6th, I look at some important story highlights from season eight of my TV program, Full Measure. This Sunday, June 4th on Full Measure, my TV program, we're going to have an exciting episode, one of your favorite of the year, our end of the season roundtable discussion where we look back at some of our favorite and best stories from season eight, the past season, and some of your favorite stories too. For today's podcast, an extended look at some of the best moments, I think, really of Full Measure this past season with a few behind-the-scenes reflections. We try to keep our finger on the pulse of the stories that matter the most to you, stories that are often being ignored in much of the media, or if they're covered at all, they're covered from an angle of trying to force a certain viewpoint down your throat, maybe censoring other views and facts and studies and information. We don't do that on full measure. And that's probably a great way to introduce the first story we're going to look at because I wanted to examine the loss of credibility in the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. You think about this, really, it was considered prior to COVID the premier public health agency in the world. But the damage that the agency suffered in terms of its credibility due to its misinformation, disinformation, wrong calls that it made about COVID, refusals to admit the errors, and even when they did admit the errors, refusals to correct the errors, even errors made at the very highest levels by the CDC director herself, really inexcusable errors, and then errors and mistakes made by top CDC scientists and advisors in ways that we were able to prove were willful. In other words, they put out this misinformation or disinformation on purpose. As a result, it's really left Americans and many around the world mistrustful of this once premier public health agency. And I looked at all of this in a cover story on Full Measure. We'll play an excerpt from that now. Hey folks, Joe Biden here, tested positive this morning. When President Biden caught COVID for the second time, uh, I'm feeling fine, everything's good. He won a place in an unlucky trifecta. Biden, top COVID advisor Anthony Fauci, and the head of vaccine maker Pfizer had all insisted the vaccines would prevent COVID. Among them, they now count at least 14 shots and six bouts with coronavirus, living symbols of the lapses, confusion, and government misinformation that mark America's long COVID nightmare. So there's no excuse, no excuse for anyone being unvaccinated. This continues to be a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Thank you very much, Mr. Vice President. Just to In the beginning, Americans put their full faith in public health officials. That's no time to pull back. That's when you got to hunker down, nail down, mitigate, 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 get the people taken care of. That's what you got to concentrate on. But 15 days to slow the spread turned into an ordeal with unthinkable costs still being paid. Economic fallout, destroyed education, shuttered businesses, lost jobs, and COVID ravaged the country all the same. 
Too often, the public watched as their top experts seemed to be the last to admit the obvious. Multiple cringe-worthy moments and false claims were provided by Dr. Rochelle Walensky, head of the Centers for Disease Control. Our data from the CDC today suggests, um, you know, that, that vaccinated people do not carry the virus, don't get sick. Just this past week, after a reported five COVID vaccinations, CDC announced Walensky's second bout with COVID in a nine-day period. In one of public health's most urgent moments, after trillions of tax dollars and decades spent preparing, CDC became a punchline. The idea that the premier health agency in the world didn't know what to do when a pandemic broke out and put out wrong information so often, that's really been harmful. I completely agree. It's, 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 uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya is a professor at the Stanford School of Medicine. He helped lead thousands of scientists early on in endorsing a different approach. Instead of shutdowns, isolate those at most risk and let others lead normal lives. Emails later revealed top public health officials conspired to smear Bhattacharya and his colleagues for veering from the narrative. The head of the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Francis Collins, wrote Fauci of the need for a quick and devastating published takedown of Bhattacharya's ideas. It just reeks of scientific incompetence or the, or the manipulation of science in order to get their desired policy ends. Probably the most egregious is this denial of natural immunity. Places like the CDC have argued that there is no proof or evidence of essentially protection against future COVID uh, exposure after you COVID recovered. No natural immunity. And so by denying this fact about the immunity, people in the real world are, are not dumb. And they say, well, why are they, why are they saying this false thing to me? What else are they saying to me that's false? Congressman Tom Massey exposed another shocking example of false information coming from CDC, as we reported last year. Massey caught top CDC leaders and scientists claiming that original studies showed people who'd had COVID would still benefit from getting vaccinated. That wasn't true. In phone calls Massey recorded, CDC officials promised they'd fix their disinformation. Instead, they continued to spread the false claims here in a seminar aimed at medical professionals. Data from both clinical trials suggest that people with prior infection are still likely to benefit from vaccination. Over the summer, keenly aware of the widening credibility gap, Walensky conducted her own review of CDC's COVID response. She concluded her agency had failed miserably in its biggest moment. We made some pretty public mistakes and we need to own them. Walensky found that to move forward, CDC must align incentives with public health action and impact, improve internal coordination, implement new governance with an emphasis on the core capabilities and accountability at all levels, and upskill and train toward a response-capable agency. Still, the inside review fell far short of the top-to-bottom makeover envisioned by critics and even by one of CDC's longtime supporters. I'm really worried um, about CDC's credibility. Lawrence Gostin heads up the World Health Organization's Center on Global Health Law. CDC does need an overhaul. 
I'm a little surprised to hear you agree with some of CDC's harshest critics in that an overhaul is needed. Yeah, I mean, it's always better um, to have suggestions for reform from a close and dear friend. And I am a, as close and as dear a friend to CDC um, as anybody could be. Everybody knows things have to change, and they do. What could they have done to not end up in a place where they lack so much public trust today? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard, you know. I mean, I, I know um, so many of the public health leaders at CDC and I'm very good friends with Tony Fauci, but nobody escaped unscathed. And there were times when the agency just literally misstepped, it misfired. When you say CDC could use an overhaul, what would you envision, something realistic? What I want to see is, you know, the best public health minds in the country doing an independent, open um, a report on what's a retrospective on CDC's performance during COVID and what it needs to do now. Right now, with no CDC overhaul or outside review underway, Politicians are threatening to step in. House Republican leader Steve Scalise says the public's loss of confidence extends well beyond CDC to the FDA and other government agencies that had a role in the problematic COVID response. How can this credibility gap that's developed be fixed? And is there anything that members of Congress, particularly if Republicans uh, regain control in November, is there anything that can be done about it? Well, we're going to be ready to go day one. And if we're in the majority, we will have hearings to get those facts out, but then go and restore the credibility of those agencies by taking away that power to just unilaterally control people's lives and get back to the science, what used to be their main focus that got thrown out the window when people politicized it because they wanted to use government to control people. Looking ahead, let's say there's another pandemic or big public health emergency with the federal agencies in the same state as they're in today, where do you think that leaves us? I, I think we're I think we're in a very very bad state. We have to reform each of these agencies pretty fundamentally. Um, it's gonna we're gonna need to have a, a very honest look at the, the problems in this pandemic. Um, you know, almost like a 9/11 style commission. Gostin says President Biden is in the driver's seat. In terms of uh, having an independent scientific public health inquiry um, on lessons learned from COVID and overhauling the CDC, he can do that. I mean, he's the head of uh, federal agencies in the United States. He could do it and he should do it and he should do all he can um, to make the CDC a really robust and shining agency, just like that shining agency on a hill um, that CDC used to be. We need to get back there. I can't stress how important I think this story is. This, of course, aired some months ago. The Republicans did take control of the majority in the House of Representatives, at least not the Senate, but the House. And yet I know of no massive effort to overhaul CDC. I don't know of any giant proposed effort that would change things. In fact, if anything, they're getting a lot more money inside the agency to do things without any assurance that the problems that they had have been fixed. In fact, I heard Dr. Fauci say that he thought the vaccine program was such a success 
Remember, the vaccine that has been proven, this is undeniable, to not prevent transmission, to not prevent spread, to not work very well, to not last very long, he thinks that was a big success story and a model that will be followed with future pandemics and developments of future vaccines as well. So nothing has changed. And if Lawrence Gostin, who describes himself as one of the best friends of CDC and a dear friend of Dr. Anthony Fauci, he thinks there needs to be an overhaul and polls show that a majority of Americans agree, but nobody's talking about doing any such thing in any serious way, where does that leave us? And in the bigger picture, isn't this the story or becoming the story of many of our federal agencies? The lack of confidence that everybody know exists right now, at least among a majority of Americans in the Department of Justice and its sub-agency, the FBI, in our intelligence agencies, not just these medical agencies that we've talked about, but the lack of credibility and confidence in our politicians, in our media institutions. This is a national or an international crisis, and I'm not sure how it gets fixed or how we really address it except to keep talking about it when a majority of Americans feel a certain way but can't get their priorities installed or aren't getting their issues addressed in the way that they think they should be addressed by their elected representatives, when the federal agencies are often calling the shots over the political figures who are charged with doing oversight of them. This is happening again and again, where the federal agencies are thumbing their nose at oversight, at requests for documents from people like me. We own the documents that they have. They work for us. We're allowed and entitled to see them, but they routinely violate freedom of information laws that are supposed to give us our demands to access the information. They routinely thumb their nose at members of Congress when Congress asks for information that we own and we're entitled to see. I don't know how this ends, but we definitely have to keep talking about it. After a short break, we're going to look at one of the most popular stories we did in season eight. It has to do with the FBI's heavy-handed tactics when it comes to prosecuting, or some would say persecuting, January 6th suspects. What a story January 6th has become, and it's not over yet. We'll be continuing to cover various untold aspects of this controversy on full measure, where most people won't even utter the words. Why is that? Well, I think it's pretty clearly a result of a successful strategy by a number of interests to so controversialize everything about January 6th that nobody would dare peek into these uncomfortable corners of what happened on January 6th, such as the FBI's role or the role of FBI agents and informants in the crowd and whether they perhaps crossed a line in inciting violence, not just measuring what was going on. Did they do the appropriate thing in terms of trying to avoid and prevent, which is, after all, why they supposedly have informants and infiltrate groups and crowds, and yet in many instances, it looks like there were things they could have done that they chose not to do for some reason. But the story that we're going to look at now was the one I aired on Full Measure about two years after the infamous January 6th rally for President Trump. As you well know, there is a side of the story that claims it was an insurrection, although to my knowledge, nobody has been charged with insurrection or sedition. And to my knowledge, nobody has been convicted of sedition. There has been a couple of conspiracy to commit sedition, which is very different. It's the difference between somebody committing a murder or somebody 
supposedly conspiring to commit a murder, two very different things. And yet every time people in the media call January 6th suspects or people who have been convicted of something seditionists or insurrectionists, they're technically, I think, defaming those people. And you may not care, but I think it's important because if you don't hold the media accountable to the appropriate terms and you let it slide because you don't like the people, you think they deserve being smeared, well, that may happen to you tomorrow. It's not okay for it to happen to anybody. That's why we have ethics and standards in journalism. They're meant to apply to everybody, even the people we don't like, or even in areas where we might not agree. Otherwise, there would be no need for standards and ethics and rules. Well, anyway, the story that I thought was important to do two years after the January 6th rally looked at the heavy-handed tactics by the FBI, what many see as a dual standard, a dual system of justice, whereby certain people are treated one way and other people who may commit violations that are far worse are given practically a free pass. There's not really a standard that you can point to that's being equally applied. So here's an excerpt of my story about January 6th. FBI. Yeah. You can't step out with us, please, sir. March 4th, 2021. Surveillance video shows FBI agents, weapons drawn, surrounding the Texas home of Trennis Evans. Looked like a dozen agents around your house. Oh, it's a lot more than that. Yeah, so there was 20-plus agents there. They had snipers. They had vehicles to block it off the street. I mean, it was insane. And your 13-year-old son is out on the front deck with his hands up. Yeah. That's his son, blue shirt, hands up. Considering the presence of a small army from the FBI, you might think Evans was a vicious criminal, armed and dangerous. In fact, he had no history of violence. This was his crime. He's in the yellow hat, climbing through a window to enter the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. on January 6th. People were coming out of the building saying the police are letting us in. You can go in. You can just just walk around. Everybody's taking videos. It's fine. In videos, you can hear Evans as he holds his camera at his chest and urges fellow protesters to be peaceful. Most were. Do not harm the police. Do not hurt the buildings. Do not destroy your own property. I took to the megaphone. We back the blue. We support the police. Don't break. Don't damage. Don't harm. Don't steal. This is a peaceful protest. Evans says the FBI had paid him a friendly visit just after January 6th. He offered his full cooperation. They said they'd be in touch. Yes. FBI. So he was shocked by the armed raid on his home weeks later. I mean, this was all part of the shock and awe they promised everybody. It wasn't only shock and awe and how they came to your house. It was shock and awe in the charging, too. Shock and awe across the board. Evans is one of many who questioned the overnight come-from-behind victory for Joe Biden. Tens of thousands attended the massive pro-Trump rally on January 6th. I know that everyone here will soon be marching over to the Capitol building to peacefully and patriotically make your voices heard. Today we will... I didn't go there for an insurrection. Where's my gun? You mean the most armed populace on the face of the planet came for an insurrection? You know, by percentage, you know, it came for an insurrection. I didn't bring any firearms. Normally, the public has the right to watch Congress. 
But with overwhelming masses and fears of violence, the capital was made a no-go zone. Crowds pushing past barriers were breaking the law. There's little dispute over prosecuting violent rioters. The controversy surrounds the FBI's heavy-handed treatment of some peaceful demonstrators. For his part, Trennis Evans says he's not innocent, but insists he's not the most wanted monster he's been made out to be. I, would, I want to own the fact that I broke the law, and I think we should all own the fact that we broke the law. But it's a civil disobedience for 99% of the people there. For the 90% you know, of the people that went in that building, it's, it's like a civil disobedience issue. After the drama of the FBI raid, Evans ended up pleading guilty to simple misdemeanors, entering and remaining in a restricted building. In November, he was sentenced to 20 days in a minimum security prison. Forever tarred as an insurrectionist, a label that he says is woefully misapplied. Now I want to reiterate something. This is, again, a case where somebody was guilty, if anything, of a nonviolent misdemeanor, somebody who had never been arrested, never been in trouble, never been involved in violence. So this would be a first offense. And the FBI sent over a dozen people, including reportedly snipers, to surround his house when he was already offering to cooperate with a SWAT team or SWAT-style raid early in the morning, putting his teenage son out with his hands up on the deck of the house. This, I, I really don't think, can be looked at as any other way other than trying to be intimidating and to send a message to people. Certainly in similar circumstances, people accused of far more are not treated that way. And maybe I don't need to go into why it is ill-advised, and I think many in law enforcement think potentially dangerous to use a SWAT team to call out a SWAT team when it's not needed or not necessary. SWAT teams can actually escalate a situation if they're not used properly. When you speak to experts in this sort of tactic, they explain how it is better or it's preferred to try to take someone into custody without having to use a SWAT team if there's any way possible to do that safely. Certainly with people with no arrest record who are accused of nothing more than potentially a nonviolent misdemeanor offense, it seems way out of line to use those kind of resources. Speaking of that, when I say resources, that's your tax money being used to fund the cost of FBI SWAT teams going to surround homes of people who, if convicted, are going to be convicted of nothing more than a nonviolent misdemeanor. And this seems like an appropriate time to talk about another one of our popular untouchable stories or a story on an untouchable topic, and that is questions about what really happened in the 2020 election. Much like January 6th, there has been a great deal of effort put in by political forces, not just Democrats, but also some establishment Republicans, to put the question to rest or to make it so controversial, the idea that there was any kind of mischief or fraud in 2020 in the presidential race, to make it something that you dare not utter or investigate or look into. But that's exactly what makes it a perfect story for full measure. And I spent quite a bit of time looking at various aspects of 2020. And I approached it a little bit differently than one might think. A lot of people said, well, 
What can you prove about fraud that would have changed the outcome of the election? I learned pretty quickly back in 2020 amid the controversy that there's virtually no way for an individual member of the media or member of the public or Trump supporter or Biden supporter to have access to the information that would be necessary to prove there was not fraud or to prove exactly how much fraud there is. All we really have is what has come out in the public record since the 2020 election. So I focused on that instead. I asked, what is it that we do know that's in the public record, which we can safely assume is only a fraction or a portion of what has actually happened? But it's what's provable. It's what's known. And then among those incidents that I was able to find and document, I highlighted a select few of them that were interesting, easy to understand or explain, and I put them in a story for full measure and let people hear the evidence that we have and decide for themselves what to make in the bigger picture of what happened. Here's an excerpt from that story. There are plenty of allegations surrounding the 2020 election when Joe Biden accomplished a remarkable overnight come-from-behind victory to get more votes than any presidential candidate in history, beating Donald Trump, who got more votes than in 2016 and more than any sitting president in history. Many election challenges filed by Trump and his supporters were quickly dismissed, often on technical grounds without addressing the specific accusations. Our second category of voting issues involves alleged election mistakes. In Georgia's close election, numerous anomalies surfaced during forced recounts. In Ware County, a small tabulation error is faulted for taking 37 votes away from Trump on Election Day. Bigger errors in other Georgia precincts with strikingly similar stories. In both Fayette and Floyd counties, Donald Trump was shorted 1,200 votes on memory cards that somehow weren't counted on Election Day. In Michigan, Shiawassee County added 100,000 votes for Biden on election night that he didn't actually get. Observers flagged the error and the tally was corrected. Antrim County reported that Biden beat Trump by 3,000 votes, Unlikely in the Republican stronghold, a recount produced the same results, but persistent challenges eventually revealed that Trump actually defeated Biden with 56% of the vote. Such tabulation errors give insight into how susceptible to human influence and error vote tallies can be. Our third category of voting issues is outright alleged fraud. But before we get to 2020, a documented case showing how election results can be manipulated live. The case was prosecuted in Philadelphia last year. Ex-Congressman Ozzie Myers, a Democrat, led a major vote fraud ring that operated in five elections leading up to 2020. He bribed election judges. They would report to him on election day how many legit votes were being cast in real time to calculate how many fraudulent votes should be added for the preferred candidates. The corrupt election judges would later attest to the accuracy of the machine results and certify the final fake counts. The example demonstrates that ballot counts and machine tallies are only as reliable as those in charge. In Wisconsin, an audit uncovered an operation to allegedly collect ballots illegally at nursing homes in the 2020 election. The nonpartisan Legislative Audit Bureau determined that the Elections Commission broke the law with nursing home oversight. 
In Georgia, an activist from Coalition for the People's Agenda allegedly got caught submitting 70 false voter registration applications and was referred for prosecution. In Virginia, Prince William County Registrar Michelle White faces trial on felony charges of illegally altering the county's 2020 election results. She said she suspects the allegations are politically motivated. In Florida, a Democrat blew the whistle on what she says is an illegal vote scheme that's operated for years in the Orlando area with paid brokers coercing voters in black communities to hand over their ballots. In Texas, a social worker is charged with 134 felony counts of election fraud. She allegedly registered people with intellectual and developmental disabilities to vote in 2020 without their knowledge or consent. She pleaded guilty to election fraud. And in California, two men were charged in an alleged scheme to submit more than 8,000 fraudulent voter registration applications leading up to the 2020 election. Friends Gary Snyder and David Lawrence say neither Democrat nor Republican leaders care to unearth long-standing voter fraud in their hometown of San Luis, Arizona. I recorded 23 videos, 23 different uh, crimes. The two Republicans in a mostly Hispanic Democrat border community took it upon themselves to expose what they said was well-known systemic election fraud. I mean, you're supposed to vote one person, one vote, and now people are telling me they have five to ten ballots. That's what got my curiosity going. And they were taking advantage of a mostly farm-working community, Latino. Very few spoke English, very few, and very easy to take advantage of. So... Were people actually saying to you, I can get you five votes? Yes, yes. And, and everything is, there's a string attached. So in other words, you can trade for a job. You can trade for a favor. You can trade for many things. And being a small community, if you have, for instance, a speeding ticket, you can get it fixed. So it depends on who you know is the favor that you can get. Early on primary election day in 2020, they decided to set up and record video outside a polling place. They caught school board member and former mayor, Guillermina Fuentes, in action. And a just lady walked up, had a ballot in her hand. Guillermina Fuentes received her ballot, opened it up, wrote on it, deciding who they're going to vote for, signed the name, and closed it. Lift open... Uh, file and inside the file you can see in the video about 12 13 ballots but she took about four ballots out and gave it to the girl so it's illegal in arizona when you give someone else ballot that's not a family direct member so that girl walked inside which is alma juarez and hence that's why she was caught in the crime as well snyder and laura reported what they saw to law enforcement and handed over the video after a lengthy investigation, Fuentes and three other women were arrested. You can see the video. I mean, they're just so blatant. They just don't care. They're, I mean, broad daylight, and they're doing it. When it comes to consequences for election mistakes or fraud, in nearly every case we examine, we found authorities often quick to accept the most innocent hypothesis. When there are arrests, charges are typically minimal with no publicly announced effort to expose larger rings. The Antrim County, Michigan election night call for Biden when Trump had actually won. The extra 100,000 votes for Biden in Shiawassee County. Innocent human errors. 
the lost and found memory cards in Georgia that contain mostly Trump votes? Blunders, not corruption. More than two years later, no movement on the case in the alleged voter registration scheme in Georgia. The California pair caught submitting 8,000 fraudulent voter registration applications. One got two years in prison, the other 60 days in county jail. The Texas social worker charged with 134 felonies, she got 13 days in jail. In the San Luis, Arizona fraud ring, the ex-mayor Fuentes was sentenced to a month in jail. She's made public statements saying she was only helping friends and that the attacks against her were political. Two co-defendants in the ballot fraud ring were each allowed to plead guilty to just one misdemeanor count of ballot abuse. They got probation only and no jail time. The case is still open against an indicted city council member in the same case. Now, I don't know what you think, but to me, the crime of trying to impact elections in a dishonest way is really serious, particularly when you're talking about, for example, a couple of criminals that tried to get 8,000 fake voter registration applications submitted. What is that about? What ring were they potentially looking for? And yet they get almost nothing. I think it really amounts to a slap on the hand in the end. And then contrast that with the treatment given to the person in the story we talked about a few minutes ago, where it was a nonviolent misdemeanor offense of trespassing, if anything, and the FBI pulled out a SWAT team to circle the guy's home and make this arrest. A SWAT team raid for that, but no SWAT team raids in any of these offenses and allegations that we talked about that potentially impacted elections. If you find this an interesting discussion, there are two actions you can take. You can go to CherylAckison.com and click the Full Measure tab. That will lead you to a link where you can watch all of the cover stories that you like, all of these interesting issues that have been fleshed out, not just from Season 8, but for all eight seasons of Full Measure. You can see what you've been missing if you haven't been watching our program. We're tackling the tough issues in an interesting, comprehensive, and fair way. We're giving voice to voices that often are not heard or are censored today. But you won't only hear those facts and viewpoints and those sides. You'll hear other sides and views and facts too, because we're not trying to force you to think a certain way by limiting your information. We think the more information that you have about topics of importance, the better it is for everybody so you can make up your own mind. The second thing that you can do is to listen to my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, when it posts later this week, because we will continue this look with additional background at some of our most popular and interesting stories from Season 8 of Full Measure. All year round, there are challenges to keeping your skin healthy. Salt, sun, chlorine, cold, and wind. That's why I designed Siren A Cosmetics, a line of skin-loving, handmade products that will keep your skin glowing year-round. I'm Star, owner of Lemonade Mermaid at store.lemonademermaid.life. I worked hard to formulate fresh, vegan body butters, lotions, scrubs, lip glosses, and more with ingredients that are good for your skin year-round. But don't take my word for it. Check out our reviews. My website is store.lemonademermaid.life. 
and listeners of this podcast can get 20% off my Mermaid Moon Gloss to Balm lip gloss by using the checkout code PODCAST. I hope to see you at store.lemonademermaid.life. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, you'll leave a great review and share it with your friends. And check out my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, for more original reporting and interviews on off-narrative topics that powerful interests often try to censor. It's never been more important to support independent reporting. You can do that by going to the CherylAckison.com website, click the Store tab, and browse our great products The most popular new slogan that I have on products there is, I need to find some new conspiracy theories. All the old ones came true. Proceeds support causes like the Cheryl Ackeson Ion Awards, giving cash awards recognizing and encouraging independent off-narrative reporting by college students and professionals. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.